first and foremost on the list is sell something that Amazon's not selling or that you don't think Amazon's going to be selling tomorrow. Is that even possible? Like, are they not selling stuff? Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it needs to be, it needs to be, I mean, my general criteria is it needs to be complex, right? I mean, uh, whether you're selling, you know, solar installations for a hospital or you're selling streetlight installations to a municipality or even commercial mailbox sales that have everything needs to be numbered and it needs, you know, is it front or rear load? Is it USPS approved or is not? Is it, you know, how is it going to be keyed? All those little nuances are just a little bit of a barrier of entry for Amazon to say, you know what? We're not going to sell options. Mark it up 40%. Just put it on the website and sell it. All right. And that's, you know, knock on wood, like they stay out of a lot of industries that are complicated. Eventually, you know, they're like the, you know, the, the mega storm that's just going to suck in everything, I yeah. su suppose. But uh, that's been my thought theory, at least, on how to survive in e-commerce. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to the Root of All Success with the real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. Hey there, I am the real Jason Duncan. Welcome back to another episode of The Root of All Success. I've got a treat for you today where, as you know, if you've been watching this in series, I'm on location in Lincoln, California, just north of Sacramento, recording at Oliver's Brew House and Grill. This is a great place. I, this, listen, you got to watch this on YouTube. If you're not watching this on YouTube, go to the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash The Real Jason Duncan. Check this out. And then go online and look up Oliver's Brew House here in Lincoln, California. It's a great place. If you ever come out here to Northern California, the Sacramento area, Go check this place out. Matt Oliver is the owner and proprietor, and they've done a great job. He's got a few other locations. I've not seen those other ones, but I can only tell you, this one is fantastic. We're recording today from the Prohibition Room, which is upstairs on the second floor. And as you can see in the video here, we got a pool table, and there's darts and cards, and it's just kind of a cool little, little place. There's a ballroom right down the hall. This is a really neat venue, and I appreciate Matt and the team at Oliver's Brewhouse for letting us record. Uh, our podcast tour 2021 here in California this week. Thank you to Matt and his team for letting us be here. The sponsor for today's episode is Nurture 360. It's N-E-R-C-H-E-R 360. Nurture360.com slash root for a special offer. Root as in the root of all success. And if you're a small business owner like I am, you know that there's a lot of struggles that you have with your CRM. Like how do you manage and maintain your customer relations? How do you get a dashboard of data that's helpful to you as the business owner? How do you make sure that you've got what you need in front of you without having to run a bazillion reports just to get the data that you need? So many of today's CRMs are built so complicated that you don't use half the stuff on there. All the bells and whistles they, that the, the developers put in there thinking that you need it, you know, they've obviously never owned and run a business because they're putting stuff in there that doesn't matter. 
So what Nurture 360 does, it gives you exactly what you need all in one dashboard. So at a glance, you can see where your salespeople are in their pipeline, where you are on revenue to budget and goals. It can, you can see everything you need to see about your customers and your day-to-day -day data that you need as a business owner. I'm really glad to partner with Nurture 360 for my companies. And once we found out what they were doing and how they did it, we replaced our other CRMs and I, my team couldn't be happier. So I'm happy that they're sponsoring today's episode. Please go to nurture360.com slash root for a special offer so that you can try out their software and see what it's like for you and your business. Again, that's nurture360.com slash root and it's spelled N-E-R-C-H-E-R-360. All right, so there you go. That's all, the, that's all the intro stuff for today's episode. Now I wanna introduce you to the guests we've got on the show. Now. This, I'm all the way over here in California. I've flown from Nashville all the way to Sacramento, and then the rest of the week I'm going to be in San Diego filming episodes. But this guy was the only guy I knew before any of this even happened because we have a mutual friend who used to live here in California who now lives in Nashville. He's a good friend of mine. And he, he originally introduced me to our guest, Lucas. He introduced me to Lucas, I don't know, three years ago. I can't, we can't remember how long ago it was, but with the intent that because he was such a great, amazingly successful business person, and I was kind of a successful guy, well, like we could get together and do business together and open an office for one of my companies out here in California. Now, ultimately, this is a long story, we ended up not doing that, but we crafted a friendship, created a friendship here and stayed in touch ever since. Not as much as I think we should probably have stayed in touch because we just spent the last 20 minutes catching up before we went on camera. But I am very happy to introduce you to this guy. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about his story. So he, so he went to, he grew up in, uh, in Florida, went to Florida State uh, University, and uh, now lives in El Dorado Hills here in Northern California. But he got his start in entrepreneurialism selling shaved ice. And so he walked into this, the, the Lowe's, you know, Lowe's home improvement store and talked to the manager and convinced him, even he was a teenager, and convinced him to let him come in and come out in the parking lot, set up a shaved ice thing, and then started doing this at different places. And at one point, decided to expand his business operations into Puerto Rico. So he goes down to Puerto Rico thinking he's gonna, the hot climate was gonna make it a great place to put shaved ice, and it was ready to go, and got there and found out that the street vendors were selling shaved ice for a quarter, and his price was four bucks. So what was gonna be a business trip turned out to be just a two week long vacation. <laughs> but, and we'll hear more about that story in a minute, but then he also got into the mailbox business and I'm not gonna give away the story because I'm gonna ask him to tell a little bit about that business. He went into just selling mailboxes door to door and then he actually developed uh, WebLife stores, which is an e-commerce platform that sold a lot of mailboxes, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then in 2018, he started and was part of the founding group to start a company called Can Goods at C-A-N-N goods in the cannabis industry because he saw an opportunity there that there was really a mess in the way that the industry was being supported and how all of the supplies and the logistics would all work together in the supply chain. So he's going to tell a little bit about how he got started in that. So with all that being said, this guy is super successful. We're going to find out about all of the details of that success on the show today. I want to welcome and I want you to help me welcome Lucas Robinson to be on the show. Lucas, it's good to see you again, Thanks man. Thanks for having me, Jason. I, I'm uh, over in your neck of the woods now, even though you were born in Tennessee. Yes, as you know, uh, <laughs> I was born in Hohenwald, 
Uh, Hohenwald, Tennessee. It, only in Nashville do I say Hohenwald because anywhere else in the world they just think I say hole in the wall, um, which is maybe inappropriate. No offense to those from Hohenwald, uh, which would be include me, albeit I don't remember much about there because I was just born there and then whisked away to uh, Chattanooga, which is really where I lived as a when I was born. Now, but you have a great story about being probably the youngest patron ever to go through a Wendy's drive-thru. Yeah, right? you know, maybe the podcast will make its way to, to Wendy's corporate because I think I want some official recognition. I was went through a Wendy's drive-thru at, couldn't have been more than a few hours old, in the back seat of a car. My mother had me at a midwife's uh, facility. I like to refer to it as a cabin, technically. I think it was kind of like a cabin <laughs> uh, in the woods in Hohenwald, Tennessee, where I was born and then my parents drove back same night within, I, I, if I understand the story right, like within two hours, we were driving back uh, after being delivered at a nearly, as a 12 pound baby. Um, so I was a large uh, baby born out in the woods in Holdenwald, Tennessee. Uh, so despite living in California, I feel quite at home when I'm in, uh, in Tennessee. And what was it? They, they wanted a Frosty or something? Like, what, what was Well, it? yeah, my parents were apparently fond of Wendy's. You know, they were pretty poor back then from the stories I understand. At one point, they worked at Wendy's. So it's quite possible that they had, like, employee certificates. I don't know if that's part of the story. And I know they did tell me that many meals were eaten with, like, employee vouchers. Uh, but yeah, Wendy's played a role in my uh, in my initial uh, hours of life. <laughs> I, I actually I'd forgotten that story until right when I looked at you to introduce. I was like, I got to tell this story. You were born in Tennessee, but you you had some childhood in Chattanooga, but really Florida was kind of home. That's, That's right. where you grew up, and you went to FSU and mm -hmm. studied there. But but it was in in your your like 16, 17 when you started the shaved ice thing. When I was sixteen, I set up my first shaved ice cart. It was a little bit uh, just one thing led to another, uh, as happens with entrepreneurial spirit, is I, I had a shaved ice machine that I had access to that uh, through one of my father's uh, uh, adventures uh, had this leftover shaved ice machine. I took that. I talked to some folks that knew something about the shaved ice business and figured out if I had a cart and a machine, all I needed was flavors and water, and I had a product that had 85% gross margin. And so with that information, I went, you know, I went to a few locations on the beach to see where I could sell. That was at 16, I set up in front of a t-shirt shop on the beach, and the thought was, I can go get a job at the mall, like my friends, and go make minimum wage, you know, which at the time I think was like you know, seven, eight bucks an hour, or I could sit on the beach selling snow cones to, um, you know, spring breakers, you know, summer, summer breakers, they're out there uh, taking their vacation. And uh, that turned out to be a pretty uh, cool deal because I just sat there all day and, you know, usually sell 100 bucks worth of snow cones and make my 85 bucks and thought I was in hog heaven. Now, when did Puerto Rico come into the play? Well, so you kind of jumped through a few years there, but at, at 18, I went and uh, set up multiple snow cone carts and even some hot dog carts did Lowe's, did Walmart, set up out in front of those facilities. That was fun, uh, had to, but to jump to Puerto Rico. I would comment on Walmart is that I look back and realize I was 18, I was writing letters and mailing them to the vending division of Bentonville. And they answered me to my surprise. No kidding. And they let me set up at two Walmarts. And uh, after a couple of years, I got real, um, aggressive and just thought, well, if they let me set up at two, like, is this just like an automated process? They're just going to say yes. So I like requested to like set up at a dozen 
they, they said no. <laughs> they, they didn't let me. I, at one point, I, I, I messaged them saying, can I set up basically at every Walmart in the southeast? You know, not really, but like within a 100-mile radius, 200-mile radius, I tried. Uh, they had no part of it. So at that point, we were looking, well, where do we expand? And it seemed obvious uh, to us that we should expand to the south and have longer summers. And you know, I look back again realized just how naive I, I was, which I think is actually a great characteristic for a young entrepreneur. You should be naive and dumb, and you should just go out and try things. Because I went down to Puerto Rico, and I got off the airplane, got off the airport, out of the airport with my wife in Old San Juan, which I highly recommend, beautiful place, cobblestone streets, 500 years old, Columbus, you know, Christopher Columbus, like his pubs and stuff are there, uh, or places that he visited. And uh, lo and behold, within a few minutes, we found these street fair uh, vendors who were selling shaved ice for 25 cent and quickly realized that uh, another lesson that I learned in entrepreneurialism or business in general was like I probably should do like a landscape analysis and understand before I make plans like this. So uh, literally within an hour of being on the ground, I looked at my wife and said, I think we're just going to have ourselves a two-week vacation. And uh, we literally canceled all of our stops, meetings we had, and we just rode off Puerto Rico as probably not a good place to go sell shaved ice. <laughs> uh, it, truth be told, we did stop off. Like we checked some marinas and some you know, like their, like their big stores, but, you know, out in front of their store, they're selling, you know, vending stuff, but all of it was like a dollar or less. And so, uh, just wasn't the right market, right? We were used to that tourist market of Florida that you can inflate the price of everything. And now you said you were, you're with your wife. So you got married pretty young, right? Uh, yeah, we've been married going on, uh, you put me on the spot here, Jason, going on like 16 years. <laughs> yeah, we're 16 years married. Wow. So, so you and your wife, she, she kind of tagged along that shaved ice business, but then you did mailboxes, which I think is interesting because the way I understood your story is that you essentially just printed off pictures of what you could buy at Lowe's and went door to door and said, would you like this in your yard at, you know, in your driveway and you were selling. Is that That right? was proof of concept. Uh, so I was graduating college from FSU, and I was I had taken the LSAT and was considering law school. I had some good advisors there at FSU. Just said, Lucas, you got the summer business. You should probably just consider doing more business the other nine months of the year versus going to law school was their advice. I appreciate that advice. It, it served me well. And to do that, I had uh, an uncle at the time who was doing some mailboxes, and he kind of gave me the lay of the landscape. And so I thought, well, let me just see if I can't sell a mailbox. The idea was you sell one, you sell a whole subdivision. Uh, because they were themed communities real big in 2005-06, pre-residential uh, crash, you know, the economic crash of 2008-09. So, uh, yeah, we took the print-off of a mailbox that I literally went to Lowe's, took a picture of it, uh, found a picture online of that box installed, printed it off, and uh, just went up and down the street to businesses and said, will you buy this for 300 bucks installed? And, uh, like, I don't know, so that first day I had a taker, came back the next day, installed it, netted 100 bucks, maybe 125, 30. It was a $100 mailbox. So 200 bucks, you know, uh, but I had to install it and I had to pay for the concrete. So maybe I netted 100 bucks. But that was my proof of concept. It was like, apparently I can sell these things. Again, naive, probably wasn't enough proof of concept to, to make a big bet on it. But the big bet was, let's try selling more. So we went on from there and started talking to. And you built that into a pretty significant business. Yeah, um, that, that initial business uh, we shut down because it was uh, brick and mortar selling to builders and developers. But after the uh, crash of 2008-09, just the, uh, 
the, the, the commercial real estate, the development, all of that shut down, if you're familiar with the economic situation, 2008-9, and found ourselves uh, pretty broke and uh, needing to sell, figure out where we can sell. And the only assets we had were, I had relationships with these vendors who would sell mailboxes. And a lot of these vendors required that you have a, a storefront, a brick and mortar. And I think a lot of that was really fortuitous in the sense that they, they kind of had pity on the situation for a lot of their vendors because they were all getting raked over the coals. And they said, you don't need a storefront, Lucas. We'll, let, we'll sell to you your new business uh, and let you sell online. And uh, we started an online business, and that was 13 years ago. And that's Web Life Stores, right? That's Web Life Stores. And so, you're, so you shut down the brick-and-mortar mailbox door-to-door -door kind of thing, but you moved it really online, mm -hmm. and you're still selling mailboxes kind of, right? Yeah, we, 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 our flagship product is mailboxes. You know, I like to think of we're good. We're an online seller, an online merchant. We, we've learned what it is to offer the different facets, facets of online sales, good support, good web dev. Um, you know, but the real, I'd say the secret sauce is how do you have good analytic tracking of your, your operations, specifically in the area of marketing, but all the rest of the business as well, and how do you scale that in a way that you can track the numbers and really understand, you know, uh, well, understand what levers you can pull on, you know, what pulleys and levers you have at your disposal. And uh, if you can really dial that in, you can understand, you know, these levers will increase this. And if I want to increase it, you know, pull more on the lever. And that's kind of a combination of, um, basic analytics and you know if, to get fancy maybe into some data science right how do you get into predictive modeling to suggest that you know i i, I theorize that if i do this um you know i can get this outcome right and then go put your money where your mouth is and test it out well you you taught me when we one of the first meetings or so that we had uh, a few years ago when we first met you flew out to tennessee met at my office we were talking a, a, a ratio of dollar spend versus on marketing versus revenue. And I t tell, tell her, because I thought that was really cool, and I want you to tell it rather than me trying to butcher well, it. Yeah, from e commerce standpoint, one of the number one things that you're going to wrestle with is your marketing spend. Because, you know, what a lot of folks don't know is if you needed to sell a million dollars worth of anything tomorrow, like you could do it. Almost anything. It's just a matter of, are you going to do it profitably, right? If you had the money to spend on the marketing. Right, we, and so if you have a widget that you sold for $100 that has, call it a 20% gross margin, um, are you going to spend $20 to sell it, your cost of acquisition? And if so, you're, probably, you're not going to be a profitable business. But our goal was always to get that. The metric we like is marketing cost as a percentage of gross margin. Internalized, you know, internally, we have an acronym for it. What is it? Um, you know, whatever the, the, the MKGC, um, right? Gro GM, right? Uh, marketing cost percentage of gross margin. And we wanted to have it below 30%. It was always our goal. And what we've learned is, is the more we understand our data, understand our customers, we can keep optimizing that number. And uh, we have, you know, we've got that number down below 15%, uh, which for a long time, we were just happy to have it below 30%. And, and while doing that, driving up your actual revenues and gross profits. And, you know, to, if you'd like me to go a little deeper yeah, into that. I, and let me, well, let me clarify that because I think what, what, what stuck out for me when you, were, you and I were talking about this originally a few years ago was that you had it dialed in to where like if you're spending more than 30% of your gross margin on marketing, like per, dollar per spend, 
you're never going to make it. It's, you're not going to be profitable because once you go past that threshold, I've got empirical data to show that it won't work. Right. But now you've driven that even lower. You're, I mean, you're not saying that you need to be at 15, but you've successfully gotten to 15%. Well, it's all relative to your business type, right? Which really relative to what your gross margins are, right? So mailboxes, call it a 20% gross margin, what we're working with. And so for a 20% gross margin business, that number's 33%, right? For the sake of uh, not, if you put it on paper, you can do the numbers at a 50% gross margin and, and adjust the numbers. You can spend more if you got better gross margin. But what we found was take all of your marketing campaigns. Lots of times they're organized in campaigns, maybe sub-campaigns. If you can track all those, maybe you have 100 different campaigns, maybe you have two or 300 different campaigns. If you actually can track the actual marketing spend as a percentage of gross margin on every one of those one, 200 campaigns, cut your ones that are over 33% and double down on the ones that are below 33% or whatever number you set. 33 is the, the moving target. I like 33 historically as a, as a if you're above 33%, you're probably in dangerous territory. If you're below 20%, you're probably in really healthy territory. But if you can do that at a per campaign level, as granular as you can, you can infinitely scale. Because what you'll end up with is the more I double down on those campaigns, you'll hit diminishing returns. And you'll say, well, you know, I can spend $5,000 a month to drive revenue on this little campaign. Might have another campaign, you spend $50,000 a month, right? And so you come to understand every one of these very granular campaigns. So it essentially becomes your company's intellectual property. That is, if someone were to come in the mailbox business and start today, they would be accumulating that knowledge. Well, we have 13 years of that knowledge and understanding all those campaigns at a very granular level. And you sell a lot of mailboxes every year. It's relative, right? <laughs> I'd say for, for, you know, for competing with kind of a mom-pop business model, yeah, we sell a lot of mailboxes. <laughs> I, I remember that was, I think that was, Maybe the phrasing that uh, that our mutual friend who introduced us uses, like, yeah, he sells mailboxes online. I'm like, what? Like, you're introducing me to a guy that sells, sells mailboxes? But then, of course, it's not always as peers. You know, there's so much deeper, and you're that guy. Like, no matter what it looks like, there's so much below the surface, and you would figured this out. So the mailbox thing is not the only thing you're doing, though, right? You, you've parlayed that into uh, canned goods, which is something that's completely different than mailboxes and mm -hmm. that you have a different goal for that company as well. Because Web Life Stores, you, you took you eight years to become profitable at $10 million in revenue. But with canned goods, it's a completely different model, completely different industry. So tell me about canned goods. Yeah, uh, canned goods started that three years ago or so ago, really right around the time we met. Uh, opportunity came my way to be involved in a uh, company canned goods, um, or at least in the opportunity came my way to explore. Like I, there were people around me that were that were dabbling in the space, and 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 I did find some very believable people in what it, uh, in regulated spaces. People who had taken products through the FDA approval process. They had taken products into regulated markets, and I got them to weigh in on the situation. And what they identified was, and what we identified. I did a, a year-long listening tour, so to speak, where we just traveled the world. Uh, and we truly traveled the world. We spent time, a lot of time in Europe, time in Israel, across Canada and the U.S., um, listening to, to folks and understanding the dynamics of what's happening in the cannabis supply chain, specifically the CBD. Um, not to go on a tangent, but you know, we don't touch the THC market right now uh, and don't necessarily have plans to, uh, but I will point out that it is, from my perspective, it's, it's an ingredient, and it's an ingredient that it's well known to have efficacious value 
albeit because of the way it's regulated in the US, we don't touch it. Um, but we, we realized that that market, the supply chain just had a lot of problems. It was not a lot of clarity of how you take a concept of a product and take it from the hemp fields to the store shelves. And the more of a black box that was for uh, stores and brands that were trying to get in that business, the more of an opportunity we had. And so um, that's what we've been doing the last few years is kind of deciphering that and helping brands bring products to the market in a safe way, uh, in a consistent way. Basically, give us a specification of a product and we help ensure all the way through the supply chain um, that those products hit the store shelves meeting those specs. And we play a number of roles there. Like we have a, a formulation lab that we own. We do our own uh, small scale production. Uh, we have partners that do much larger productions. Um, and you really have to meet the regulatory, the regulatory requirements for wherever the end product is. And you know, that adds a lot of layers of, of options because you could be going into the UK or Europe, which has a lot of requirements, or you could be selling online in the US, which has very little requirements. Um, so you kind of have to know your market and build the right supply chain. So how did the, well, where did the idea for canned goods originate? What was the genesis of a, hey, cause I know you're a fixer, like you can see things and fix and pull things together, but where did the idea originate? Like, let's even look at this to begin with. Well, I mean, the idea or the, the need to look beyond where, what I was doing at WebLife was really a diversification, you know, as it, you commented that we weren't profitable till we, till we were doing 10 million in revenue, right? We, we were looking at this growth model that said, all right, revenues go up, margins are here. We kind of needed, to, we overbuilt our team a little bit just to get to the scale I felt like was necessary. At the point I had no kids at the time, so I took big risk. Don't encourage people to take big risk when you got a family and all that stuff, but I knew worst case scenario, I'm living with my, my in-laws back at the lake house, right? So, so I, you know, I understood my landscape a bit when it came to risk. We took big risk. We, we spent a lot of, uh, we built a team that was over too big for our team. We built a team that was too big for our size with the, the company that we wanted to build, right? And the reason that's important is that by the time we got to, to break even, right, I was lar heavily leveraged and realized that it's great, I got a profitable business now, um, but what happens, you know, that I'm familiar with the high poppy reference. If you're, if you're the, the high poppy in the field, you're the one that gets cut, right? And I didn't want to be I didn't want to get cut. I didn't want to, you know, have that terrible, you know, uh, realization that, you know, some competitor came in and, and took us out. So I was looking for diversification is my point. And so not quite the, the question you asked, but the, that was really the, the genesis was I wanted diversification in my own business portfolio. And then with canned goods came the opportunity to do something that was a bit more of a, you know, if you look at you know, maybe what Mavlo's hierarchy of needs and we're trying to go for self-actualization. It was like, how do I achieve something in life that I'm proud of? Um, or let me say, that, I'm very proud of the web life business. So that didn't really, that's not really what I'm saying here, but the point is that the business efforts were about delivering efficacious products to a market. Yeah. And now you can build a whole business around what it is to bring health and wellness to people and to do it safely and to do it effectively and to do it in a, in a global way. Right. And so those things really spoke to me. Right. So I get the opportunity to scale something a lot bigger than the U.S. mailbox industry, which is, you know, a few hundred million dollar market cap uh, where the global non-THC cannabinoid business is you know, billions of dollars. Wow. And so now that uh, canned goods, is that that's your 
primary focus day to day, your, your full time job, so to speak, is you're handling that and you've got a team that kind of manages web life. We do. Yep. We've built a really good team at web life. You know, a real focus there on uh, expanding through data science, as I mentioned earlier, you know, what it is to dashboard, you know, everything from dashboards to predictive models uh, to drive and grow businesses. I think that really is the future in small business America. It's, you know, well, small business in general is like, you know, I, I can go off a tangent there, so I'll put, but as far as uh, my day-to-day -day, uh, with canned goods, you know, it's, we're really, you know, it's, a, it's an industry that, who knows how fast it's going to grow, right? We know it's going to grow. The regulatory environment is a big is, is a big question mark because of COVID. You know, the FDA has not come out and given us a lot of clear guidance, which has really worked well in our favor. It's allowed us to not have to take on a lot of capital. We've taken on very little capital from external uses. We've grown. We have some of the biggest brands in Europe and the UK that uh, that we service and that are selling our products that we formulate and that we manufacture on the shelves of thousands of retail stores across the UK and Europe. So uh, we're rocking and rolling, and uh, we got a great team. We're based our team's based out of Mason, Ohio, which uh, we're proud to to point out the fact that we're literally across the parking lot from the R&D facility of Procter and Gamble, and so we you know, benefit by being in in the backyard of Procter and Gamble and. If you know anything about Procter & Gamble, uh, making products uh, to serve the masses and formulating those products is in, and, and capitalizing on the IP that is in formulation is uh, right in their wheelhouse. So. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think it's cool, too, that, you know, I, one of the things that the central tenets of what I teach as a coach is exit without exiting, you know, and you can own the business, still maintain 100% ownership, but you can move on to that ideal life, that other thing that you want to accomplish, that new challenge, that new business, or whatever it happens to be, if you set up your business correctly, it can run without you having to be there day to day. And that's what you've done with your team at WebLife. And you've got a significantly um, uh, successful business with WebLife that doesn't require your day to day oversight. Yeah, that's been fun. And that's, that's people, right? That's having the right people. And you know, if I have any MO when it comes to people, I, I trust people. I give them a lot, of, a lot of responsibility and a lot of trust. And, and then we iteratively improve upon those systems. And, um, you know, I can't say enough about the team we have there, right? Um, my first employee ever uh, still works with me 13 years later. Um, my head of that company, a guy named Fred, um, you know, remarkable, you know, one of the most amazing uh, humans I've ever known. And, you know, with, with a team like that, uh, and we talked about this, you know, uh, before the show, it's like, you know, would you take, uh, you know, $100 uh, and a hundred people or a million dollars in one person. And uh, as you pointed out, you, you take the hundred dollars and the hundred people uh, if, if your goal is to do something meaningful. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. Well, what, what, would you, what would you define, like how would you define the word success? What does Lucas Robinson think success means? Well, having a goal and going out there, you know, I think of it, pretty black and white, like if I want success and I'm like have some objective and I'm going for it, right? So I, I'm a big, like, let's understand what our objectives are and let's go for it. Um, if I had to say something that I thought was impactful that for success, I think success is just not quitting. And, you know, whether we achieve our goal and we look back and say, you know, I'm top of the mountain, I did it. Or we look at it and say, I still know what my goal is and maybe I've optimized it and tweaked it a bit and I'm halfway there. You know, those are both success. In fact, I think, you know, very rarely do we get to the top of the hill and say we did it and like that's success, right? It's usually, 
it's the journey, it's the process. So I'd say success for me, I don't know if this is a good answer or a real answer or not, but I think something along the lines of just not quitting and having, I think you, you hear that described as grit, and that's, you know, no matter what the situation is, are you willing to regroup and, and get back after it with, with the real just vigor that everyone around you knows that there's not a chance you're stopping. So with that as your definition of success, do you consider yourself to be successful? Um, hmm. I, yes. I think given that limited scope of an answer, I, I think the one thing that I have as a personality trait is that I'm, I don't quit. You know, I've been, uh, I, I love the, the, the quote, uh, everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face. I think that's a Mike Tyson that's quote. That's right, yeah. Right, and you know, I've had lots of plans and I've been punched in the face a lot of times. And the reality is that uh, every time I find myself in this, uh, you know, more energized, more invigorated, like that, that, that there is an opportunity to achieve the objective. And, uh, and the more I do that, the more people around me will believe as well. And I'd say that in lies, you know, like a, a very great value of like people aligning with you to say, hey, I believe in what you're doing and I want to do it with you. And that to me is success. So, the, you know, the show is called The Root of All Success, and the way this thing originally, originally came about was after spending years just casually paying attention to people like you and, and our mutual friend and others like you guys and asking, well, how did you do what you did? Like, how did you build a multi-million dollar company out of nothing? Just a complete, I, how did you do it? And, and what I found was that these five things continue to show up every single time. And, and I, 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 Obviously, as a, as a former pastor and school teacher, I'm looking for patterns. I'm looking for things that I can take and teach to others. And so what I found was these five things appeared every time. And I see them in your story, too. And I want to I get you to either agree or disagree that these are part of your keys to success. But the first one is passion. And passion doesn't have to necessarily be in the product or service that you offer. Like, there's probably not a ton of passion in shaved ice or mailboxes or even uh Cannabidiol, how do, how do you say it? Cannabinoids. Cannabinoids, see I always say it wrong. But like the passion in that, you could or could not have the passion, that doesn't matter as far as an enjoyment or, or a love for it, but what passion truly means is willingness to endure. Like that's what the word actually, that's where it comes from. And the passion of the Christ was, Christ was willing to endure for a greater cause. So did passion, that sense of passion, play into your story of becoming a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, I think even the answer I gave a moment ago is, you know, reflects that in the sense that, you know, to have an objective with a team and to clearly lay that out and say, guys, this is our objective. And you know, the thing about having a team is there's accountability, right? There's an immediate accountability. Well, you know, how are we doing with that objective and are we getting closer? And the ability to pivot, adjust, regroup, and continue with a certain level of vigor to achieve that objective, um, it takes perseverance. It takes the, you know, a willingness to, to be wrong, to say you're wrong, a humbleness. You know, all of those other virtues have to be you know, delivered on. You have to display those things to persevere and keep people around. Yeah. Right? How many times as an entrepreneur have you overpromised and underdelivered, right? And the old saying is like, you, you need to underpromise and overdeliver. But most entrepreneurs, you know, at some point in their life, maybe they learn from it and quit doing it, but it's like to see things with two rose colored glasses so that they overpromise, right? And so to 
for one, to learn from that, but just to, even if you find yourself in those situations, to be able to come, with, come together with your team and say, hey guys, there, there still is a strategy, there still is a hope for this, our objective. Um, I'd say it's nothing but you know, uh, perseverance. Yeah, so pushing through perseverance, passion, that, that's part of your story you've pushed through. I mean, you spent eight years before you were profitable, which is not a recommended way to do things, but you did it and pushed through. <laughs> I tell people all the time, they're like, well, what do you think about e-commerce? Don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Um, yeah, there's nothing I could say more about. Like, don't, don't go sell mailboxes and don't do e-commerce um, unless you have something with better margins and, 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 and some real intellectual property that's, that protects you. You know, I forgot to tell you this pre-show, and, and it fits in here, so I'll actually say it on the show. One of the businesses I started, was an e-commerce business. <laughs> I started one. We should have talked first. Oh man! And uh, and so Matt, my apprentice, who's sitting off camera over here, he's he's helping me run it. And the plan is, uh, uh, the plan is, my wife is, you know, she has interest in kind of taking over because it'll give her more freedom to, to be at home rather than working in an office somewhere. But um, yeah, it's it's tough. But we we've managed uh, to. We're not profitable yet. We're close. Yeah. But we're not going to take eight years of doing that. Yeah, well, I say it tongue-in-cheek, right? I mean, yeah. obviously, e-commerce is a lot of the future. If you do Small Business America and you're selling something, you probably need to sell it online at some, in some capacity, whether it's a service, or, uh, uh, anything you're selling, whether you're selling a, a way of thinking or a service or a product, you need to have an online plan. However, um, there, are, there are elephants out there that will squash you, primarily Amazon, and you know, that's where you know, it's a serious conversation with folks. If you're gonna sell online, you better have a plan that you didn't come up with yesterday. And it better be pretty well vetted out with people who really are believable in the space. And you know, first and foremost on the list is sell something that Amazon's not selling or that you don't think Amazon's gonna be selling tomorrow. Is that even possible? Like, are they not selling stuff? Right, oh, well, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it needs to be, it needs to be I mean, my general criteria is it needs to be complex, right? I mean. Uh, whether you're selling, you know, solar installations for a hospital, or you're selling street light installations to a municipality, or even commercial mailbox sales that have everything needs to be numbered and it needs, you know, is it front or rear load? Is it USPS approved or is not? Is it you know, how is it going to be keyed? All those little nuances are just a little bit of a barrier of entry for Amazon to say, you know what, we're not going to sell options. Mark it up 40%. Just put it on the website and sell it. All right, and that's you know. Knock on wood, like they stay out of a lot of industries that are complicated. Eventually, you know, they're like the, you know, the, the mega storm that's just going to suck in everything. I yeah. su suppose, but uh, that's been my thought theory, at least, on how to survive in e-commerce. Well, the e-commerce situation kind of leads me into the second of the five keys, and that's the right place at right time. Mm -hmm. You know, your your first foray into a hugely successful business, at least from a financial standpoint, is e-commerce was an e-commerce company, but that wouldn't have happened if you not been in the right place at the right time to make that happen. We could look at that in terms of just era, like when you were alive and born versus where you, and also where you live and that type of thing. Do you see that as one of the keys to your success, right place, right time? A hundred percent. I think that, well, I'll comment on me personally and, and then uh, kind of, I have a thought about that, but yeah, personally, there's a lot of fortuitous situations where I was in the right place at the right time. Um, I mentioned I couldn't get the mailbox distributorships back in 2005, six, seven, you know, well, eight, nine, when we started the, the, the e-commerce, 
I wouldn't have had those distributorships had I not had them from a brick and mortar, right? So right there is just a, a you know, kind of a, a, a stroke of luck. Um, you know, walking in and getting a, a Lowe's to let me sell a shaved ice cart, right? I just walked in and talked to a store manager within five minutes. She said, yeah, can you set up tomorrow, right? I was just like, right place, right time. And I've had a lot of those, right? I, 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 am a, I do have a faith. I do believe that, you know, that good Lord's watching down and, and, and tracks Lucas Robinson. And there's so many scenarios where like, hey, you know, right place, right time, right person. You know, the Lord was watching me. And, and it's worked out. But the reality is not to discourage entrepreneurs. I think, you know, if you take principles and you apply them, it's just kind of like a probability. Let's just say your business has a 30% chance of success. I don't know what the national numbers are, but they're, you know, they're, they're, certainly I don't think they're 50% chance, right? So if you're a 30% chance of success, you might, and let's say you're above average, so it's 45, right? Well, you need to at least try two, if not, you know, over two businesses to have one that's gonna work. And the point is you learn from it and you evolve, but a failure in a business doesn't mean you even have the wrong principles or the wrong practice or the wrong, you're the wrong person. You know, so many, you know, there's a guy I like um, who does a podcast and he's an NYU professor. I won't give his name, but either way, but uh, NYU professor. And he, he talks about he had seven businesses, three success, four failures. He's like, I did the same thing on all seven of them, but he's like the three of them. And he kind of ran through the macroeconomics. He's like, they were just the right year, the right part of the decade, right? The point is that you could take, look at something, it's easier when you have a whole body of work to look back someone's career and you say, you know, whether it's like a Warren Buffett type or whoever, right? And you're just like, well, what, what were their successes? Lots of times their successes were the business they happened to start, you know, it was the e-commerce or the, the web business that they started in 2009 versus 96, right? Yeah. And they were too early, right? Or they were too late because they started in 2019. So just getting the timing right and you know, there's some strategy to that, but there's a lot of luck. What about, you know, what about this? A lot of people say, well, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So what I don't hear you saying is I was at the right place, right time. I'm just this luck. It was just a happenstance. But you put yourself in these places. You walked into Lowe's. You did the, you know, you right. took the pictures. Yeah, I think you went did what you did. The bigger takeaway is that you walk through those situations and you're going to get told no, and it's not going to work out a lot. Right, and so, but you do those things so that when it does work out, when you do get the yes, you try it. I mean, those are the fundamental principles that you have to you, you have to live by, right? You have to take chances. It's the weighing the risk reward. What's the or the cost reward? What's the cost of walking into Lowe's and asking to set up a Finney cart? Nothing, right? Well, twenty minutes of my time, and I'm eighteen years old, so it's worth very little, right? The reward is you can end up having you know a business that you build upon for, you know, for decades. Um, so just, I'd say that's just a principle, right? And you should do those all the time, right? I mean, I, not to go on a tangent, but like, you know, I bought a house that was a complicated buy, but it took, you know, like the cost of seeing if the guy would go under contract, you know, and it took two years to close. It just, it cost me a headache, but the upside was I could have the property I really wanted. Yeah. But the point is that always just having some awareness of, What's the cost and what's the reward? And lots of times I think we overemphasize what the cost is or we, or we maybe we don't even consider, we, we, we inflate what the real cost is and the cost of being told no is like maybe a hit to our ego. Yeah, well what, what about people? You know, right people, knowing the right people seem to always be, there's a part in every successful entrepreneur story that there was a person or two or three or 10 that was had they not known or been with that person success probably would have eluded them in at least that area. What about you? 
for sure. Um, you know, so many people along the way. Um, you know, I feel like it's hard to point to like say one person, but there's just a string of people. And you know, if you operate by good principles and 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 you're communicating well with people and people, you know, you, you build relationships, that network only compounds, right? And you get into this, you know, um, you know, not to misappropriate the, the word network effect, but it is kind of that network effect in, in an individual's life where now, you know, Jason Duncan and, you know, and Jason Duncan's network becomes my network because he and I um, have, you know, because we're, we're connected, right? And we trust each other. And he trusts that if I can help him and vice versa. The point is, is that so many people along the way have just been good people. And, you know, w one thing worth commenting is that, you know, treating people like, like people, um, you know, quick side stories, like today I have a conversation with a supplier uh, because of a supply chain cost issue. Not a fun conversation for either side of the phone because they were just not abiding by an agreement and, uh, and they knew it. They're part of a publicly traded company and they didn't have anything they could do about it. But the point is, is that treating people as humans and, and this how I started the call and how I ended the call. It's like, hey, you're playing a role, I'm playing a role. I, we let's both just acknowledge that, and this is you know. But at the same time, we have to put our our role hats on and have a very difficult conversation here, right? And lawyers may be involved, and other people may be involved, but at the end of the day, we're going to be we're going to be human with each other. Yeah. And that, um, in your question about the people, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but having those right people come along and and treating them right, you can end up with dozens of those people in your in your life and in your business, and and that's at least been my fortune. And you're in four with canned goods, the hopes are is gonna, this is going to be one of your first, your first public company taking this to the public. Is that still kind of the it, idea? It, it has been an aspiration, right? At this point, we're, we're up in the air on whether or not we actually pursue that strategy. The public markets, uh, going on a few years ago, I knew very little bit about public markets, learned a lot, you know, what it is to be on the OTC market versus, you know, uplisting onto one of the major exchanges. Um, you know, as it stands today, it's yet to be, determined on what really, if I had someone say today, Lucas, or, you know, we're not making moves today to be on the public market. We, we did previously. And, uh, that's, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a getting punched in the face experience right there. <laughs> and realizing that, you know, going on the public markets is, you know, is that what you want, right? And I think the idea of having a, I had a big taste of reality that going onto a public market with a business uh, is a whole new level of time involvement and commitment, and, you know, is a whole level of scrutiny. I'd say the biggest factor is the fact that I got three little kids at home and just not, not having any, uh, uh, not knowing, uh, well, going into it, just not really being aware of how involved it would be and to realize that, you know what, I do want to know my kids. And launching, a, trying to uh, putting a public, uh, building a public company, uh, is not conducive to having a close relationship with your with your eight year old, let's say. And so, uh, that's been the biggest driving force in, in my world when it comes to considering whether or not we wanted to try to put a company on the public market. Yeah, well, I, and I think that everybody listening would applaud your uh, focus on what's most important because so many people lose that. They lose that that your family, the people you're doing it for, are more important than what you're doing. You know, like what you're doing is important, but they're not, it's not more important than what, who you're doing it for. So, you know, my wife, and I've been married for 26 years, so I got you beat there, but I got, and my kids are a lot older than yours, but, 
you know, I, I do it for her and I do it for them and I, I do it to provide for my employees and that's, that's what I'm doing this for. Yeah. So I, I love that you said that. That's really, really yeah. important. It's, uh, it's, it's been really uh, a fun process to go through and keep refocusing. Well, what are, what are the objectives? What are we doing here? And that kind of through that process, a realization that, hey, um, one of my biggest objectives is to, you know, build an environment for my children to be able to, um, you know, have a life where they can pursue, you know, the passions and dreams on, of their own. I can create a, an atmosphere for them to do that, a, a, a basically a platform for them to do that. And part of my passions and dreams in life away from work, um, you'd really give up a lot of that if it, if it was all work. And, um, you know, I, I try to find a balance. And I think m as I turned 40 this year, I realized that um, I don't have endless amounts of energy. And so, uh, and, and, and I found that things that energize me lots of times are, I need to get away from work sometimes. Yeah, well, and it gets worse as you get older. Because <laughs> I, I got just a few years on you, man. Um, the, the last two keys to success that I found in everybody's stories, and I'll put these together in one comment, is preparation, which is the know how to pull it off, and then the plan, like what's your strategy to get the financial resources to pull it off. So it seems to me, Lucas, and knowing you and knowing your story and having this conversation a little more, more in depth today specifically on your story, is that the preparation you've had to be successful in web life and, and now Can Goods came from those early days when you were hustling, trying to figure out how do, I, how do I develop a hot dog cart that works? And how do I hire employees to run these things? And how do I make my marketing dollars work? And, and so your, your know-how was just built over years and at some point, you, I don't know if you did it consciously or aware, but you just relied on all that past experience and expertise to make web life what it is and now to make can life what it is. So that's the preparation side. And the other side is the plan. Like how do you get the money to buy the ice, ice machine? How do you get the money to buy the to mailbox? How do you, and your plan was always just manipulating in an appropriate, using the, the positive side of manipulation, but manipulating the opportunity to your advantage so you didn't have the capital outlay you just made it work is that is that am i seeing all that right yeah um from a planning standpoint it was the two was preparation, preparation and plan and planning so well comment on your last comment there as far as how you take those situations and make them more of a positive advantageous scenario um i think that's really key right the the ability to go into a situation and find the win-wins. I like to think a lot about the win-wins. You know, so if you and I are doing a business deal, let's consider, you know, ultimately let's, first of all, let, let me understand where Jason's at, what Jason needs, what's a win for Jason. If I, you know, like so often I, I see folks getting into business type dealings, and they don't even really understand what a real win looks like for the other party. So how are you gonna negotiate a deal that has the, the staying power when you're not taking the time to understand what the other party needs because you could end up just losing the deal because you just were, you were so inwardly focused, right? So the point is like, part of that strategy, I, I love finding win-win deals, right? And I've, and I've used that language a lot with folks and, and try to be really transparent, just say like, hey, I, I'm gonna try to find a win-win. And lots of times folks will say, well, like, Lucas, it seems like you just do business generously. And, and I'd say, it's not, it's not that at all, actually. I, I, I'm constantly looking to understand what fair is, and then, you know, I always wanna be north of fair, but let's figure out what a win-win is. And the reality is if I can win and you can win, I'll do that deal all day long because that's, again, that's how you bring other people on, right? So it's a win-win for me and you, now you're one more person on my team and we're gonna do things together. Yeah. Um, from a preparation standpoint. Like the know how to pull it off. 
Well, I'd say having plans, right, and tracking those plans and you know, uh, the ability to look at your plans and document them and be held accountable. I like, there's a lot of different strategies. I like OKRs, objectives and key results. There's a real accountability to that. It's here's where our objectives, these were the key results you needed to hit. And you're gonna constantly go back and say, well, did we hit it or did we not, right? So just some, whatever that heuristic process you're gonna use to go through it, but have some way to track how you're, how you're planning and you know you can learn pretty quick if you're good at planning or not, right? And most folks aren't good at planning if they're not measuring it, right? The old adage, right? You can't can't manage what you're not measuring, and so have some measurement. It gets back to dashboards, right? But again, I'm I'm a, I'm a sucker for dashboards. But um, preparation and then planning. Yeah, I don't know if I left any gaps there, but you no, know, that's. Uh, I mean, I think that I think that your story is evident that those things you rely you relied on your what your know how was to be successful in that thing. You didn't go off into some area you didn't have any know-how in. And you had a, a very, and you probably more than most, had a very specific plan on how you're gonna track it and make it work. What, but it, I guess to finish out the conversation, Lucas, what would, what would you say, there's a, there's a person sitting out there right now listening to the show, you know, no matter where they are in life, but they haven't yet taken the leap to become the entrepreneur. They haven't left their day job or they haven't launched their thing. What would you, as a super successful entrepreneur, you know, many years removed from when you started back selling shaved ice, what would you say to that person? What are your one or two pieces of advice that are critical for them to know? What age is this person? Who, whatever you think, you imagine it. I'd say, with a grain of salt, from my limited experience, right, because a lot of people have done this success with other experiences, my experience and what I observe is basically, if you're ready to work a second job, right, if you're ready to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, then there's a prerequisite checked to going into entrepreneurialism if you're doing it on top of your business. If you're 18 years old, I'd just say don't even consider getting a job. If you have a predisposition to have a risk tolerance, then just go go for it, right? Um, right? People can, if they want to start a family, whatnot, I, just I, there's real realities that I, I hope people will appreciate is like if you're Take big risk when you don't have children. Take big risk when you don't have a livelihood. Take big risk when you don't have a mortgage payment. Um, so there's my big advice for young folks. If you're 18, 19, 20, go out and do something. Take risk. Uh, fail. Take risk till you, till you fail. And, you know, and have appropriate backup plans. Generally, it's never, you know, and, and have that backup plan written out, like your worst case scenario, right? If your worst case scenario is you're gonna live on your, your in-law's couch, like, all right, well, I, you can do that. <laughs> Swallow your pride. Um, I love that. I love so that. I, that's my big push is particularly for young folks. And I have a heart for, for you know, folks who are, if they're young, you know, men, women who are young and they want to start a business, uh, take risks, go out there and do it. Um, have a plan. Don't quit. The reality is that, you know, no one's ever failed in a business that, that they didn't quit on. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good place to. That's a good bow to tie up on the conversation, Lucas. This has been. This has been great. It's good to see you. It's been so long since we've seen each other, and uh, I, we we don't need to make it this long between seeing each other as we move forward into the future. So thank you for coming over today to Lincoln and being on the show here as we're on, on uh, location at the Brew House, Oliver's Brew House. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you very much, and I, I, I respect what you're doing and. And there's, 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 a, there's a lot of good people in business like you. I don't think enough people know that they're out there, though. 
And so thank you for being who you are. I appreciate you very much. Thank you, Jason. Well, guys, as you, as you hear this show, as we listen to Lucas, who is super successful in many different businesses, you see that these five keys have unlocked success not only for him, but for dozens and dozens of other entrepreneurs that you've heard on this show already. You can unlock success the same way too. And I want you to pay attention to what you're passionate about. What are you willing to endure for? Are you in the right places to meet the right people? You've got to put yourself in those places. Yes, it is fortuitous at times that you have anything to do with it, but really, if you think about it, you've got to get out there. You've got to go do those things. So make sure you're putting yourself in those places to meet those people and persevere. Persevere, he used that term perseverance. That's part of that passion. Persevere until you get to the right place, until you re meet the right people. And then what are you prepared to be successful at? What do you have the know-how to do? Pay attention to that. Make sure you're aware of that. And then put together a good plan to obtain the resources necessary to get where you want to go. You know, as I do this podcast, I want to thank you for listening. It goes out on the C-Suite Radio Network. It's syndicated to all podcast players. So no matter where you're listening, I want to thank you for listening. And I appreciate it if you would subscribe and also leave a review. Reviews help the podcast get in front of more people. So thank you for taking the time to just spend a couple of minutes and go hit that review button, leave a five-star review if you think we deserve it, and type out how great you think the show is. I would certainly appreciate that. And if you haven't watched this on YouTube, I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but please go watch it at youtube.com slash C slash The Real Jason Duncan. You can see this beautiful place that we're in here at Oliver's today. And then we're going to be, the next few episodes are going to be from a location in San Diego as we finish out our California podcast tour here in the month of August. I don't know when these are going to end up releasing, but we're here in the month of August in 2021. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. One last final offer for you. If you would like one free coaching session with me, the real Jason Duncan. I give away one free session every Tuesday, every week to one entrepreneur somewhere in the world as my way to give back to the entrepreneurial community because I truly believe that entrepreneurs like Lucas are the ones that change the world for the better. And I want to commit to give back into that. So some of you either have coaches, don't have coaches, can't afford a coach, whatever it is, no matter where you are in your journey, starting out midway or very successful like Lucas, if you've got one issue, you just want to say, hey, I want to get your perspective on it then go to my website, therealjasonduncan.com slash free coaching, fill out the form. My team will take a look at it and reach out to you, set up a time, and you get that one free session. I only give one away every week, and it could be you. I'm The Real Jason Duncan. This is The Root of All Success. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time when we talk with another very successful entrepreneur about his or her journey to success. Until next time, remember, Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.